Matthew 3.13. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I, needed, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Living God, we ask that you would help us to hear your holy word, that we may truly understand it, believe it, follow it, obey it, seeking your honor and your glory in everything that we do. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, you may remember last week we started into chapter 3. And between chapter 2 and chapter 3, John skips over about 25 years of Jesus' life. And we made the point that that's theologically driven. John, uh, Matthew's purpose in writing is to show us not a complete comprehensive biography, but to show us how it is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And when he fast forwarded 25 years... It begins in chapter 3 with the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. So John comes out of the wilderness baptizing people. And that leads to, in our passage this morning, the baptism of Jesus, which is a very important event. Make of it what you will. We know it's important because all four of the Gospels cover and record the baptism of Jesus and I would also say, I think another indicator that it's important is to this day, this passage is a source of a tremendous amount of debate on a number of different issues. In fact, as I was preparing for this this Sunday, I started having flashbacks to the studies in Revelation. You could just spend hours reading tomes on all kinds of rabbit trails but I, that's fine. I think we're going to boil this down to what I think are some of the three main points here. But we saw last week, John begin this ministry of baptism. And as he begins this ministry of baptism, you have these Jewish people coming to the Jordan River in droves. Thousands, the text implies, coming to be baptized. They're taking the unheard of step of going down to the Jordan River. And I want to be very clear here. I think this is important. This is one of the things that come up, comes up. Verse 16, Jesus came up from the water. That has nothing to do with the mode of baptism. Presbyterians don't get hung up on the mode of baptism. We're talking about sprinkling, pouring, intention, dunking. To get, to get to the Jordan River, you have to go down to it. To come out of the Jordan River, you have to come out of it. That says nothing to do about mode. So this just doesn't speak to mode. But they're going to the baptism. They're being baptized. They're confessing their sins. And they're calling on God to cleanse them and to prepare them and to make them ready for the coming kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And this is a shocking event. 
This is an act of repentance. And one thing that most of the evangelical commentators agree on is that it was a common practice in the Old Testament for Gentiles to receive baptism, to receive a washing as part of converting to Judaism. It was not that common for Jewish people to be baptized. So that's a real shocking turn of events right at the beginning of chapter 3. And I think it's clearly sending the message especially when we saw the way this contrasted with the the Pharisees and the Sadducees that don't want to have anything to do with a ministry of repentance, don't want to have anything to do with a ministry of baptism, that entrance into the kingdom is not about bloodlines. Entrance into the kingdom is not about your genealogy. Entrance into the kingdom is not about what titles or credentials you might think are important. Entrance into the kingdom is one way and one way only. That is repentance from our way and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ's way. And the Pharisees and Sadducees in general did not want to have anything to do with that approach. But the shocking thing is, so many of these Jewish people do. And this seems to be a real ministry of repentance by this last of the great Old Testament prophets, John. But as shocking as that is, I think the more shocking thing is what happens in our passage this morning. When out of the crowds of these thousands of people coming to repent and be baptized... Jesus emerges and Jesus comes out of the crowd and he joins these thousands of sinners in baptism. And again, you don't want to miss the the juxtaposition here of the religious authorities who are shunning Jesus's John's baptism. We don't need this. We're too good for this. We're we're. Uh, descendants of Abraham were fine, thank you very much, spiritually speaking. Contrast that with the perfect, sinless Savior who very willingly welcomes this baptism by John. And even though it's the source of much debate, which I think does indicate that it is something important going on here, And there are many questions that this raises. I think we can boil this down to three basic questions that are at the heart of this passage. Number one, why was Jesus baptized? Number two, did Jesus possess the Holy Spirit and sonship prior to this baptism? Because the event brings that into question. And number three, what does the voice from heaven mean? So let's just look at that briefly, one at a time. First question, why was Jesus baptized? That is an excellent question. And you'll notice in our passage, John the Baptist wonders the exact same thing himself. John, verse 14 When he sees Jesus come out of the crowd and ask to be baptized, John would have prevented him, verse 14, saying, I need to be baptized by you, 
and do you come to me? Excellent question. Very logical that he would ask this. Very logical in the conclusion that he draws. But Jesus gives an answer. And he says in verse 15, Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, the baptism that John is offering, we've emphasized the point, it is a ministry of repentance. And the first thing I would say is when you repent, you turn away from your sins. This is by definition what repentance is. You turn away from your sins. It's, it's two parts. You turn away from your sins and you turn toward the ways of God, the righteousness of God, the grace and provision of God. So it's a turning away and it's a turning to. And I would say very clearly, it is obvious Jesus does not have any sins that he needs to turn away from. Matthew has emphasized that already. He will continue to emphasize that. All of the gospel writers emphasize that. He does not need to turn away. He has no sinful ways to turn away from. But you do repeatedly see throughout the gospels, Jesus turning to the Father. That's a very important thing. Jesus is always obeying the Father, following the Father, obeying the Father's will, turning toward the Father. And you'll remember, we've seen this in the first two chapters of Matthew 2, Matthew places a very heavy emphasis on this idea of Jesus's ministry fulfilling Old Testament expectations. And let me tell you what I mean by that. One way we've seen that is Matthew's repeated use of the fulfillment formulas. Jesus did this to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy. Jesus did this to fulfill this Old Testament. We've seen that about five times already just in the first two chapters. When Jesus says, and he uses this word in Matthew's gospel, to fulfill all righteousness... I think all of those fulfillment formulas, that same language, same word, are the context. He's thinking back to the Old Testament. He's doing something here, however you understand it, that is in fulfillment to God's saving purposes, particularly as revealed in the Old Testament, whether it be by prophecy or whether it be by Types and signs and shadows. And we've seen that too. In fact, just the first two chapters of Matthew, Matthew has gone to great lengths to identify Jesus with the people that he came to save. Now, how have we seen that? Well, you remember very opening verses. We're told Jesus is the descendant of Abraham. And as the descendant of Abraham, he is the perfect fulfillment of everything that Israel was not or everything that Israel was intended to be, but failed to be. And we see Jesus in Matthew's gospel in these first two chapters retracing 
the steps of Israel, retracing the steps of the nation that he's come to save. Where they go, he goes. Uh, They go shelter in Egypt under threat of death. You remember the infant Jesus goes and shelters in Egypt under the, the threat of death. They are saved by God's grace from the slaughter of the innocents under Pharaoh. Jesus is saved, sheltering in Egypt by the the grace of God from the slaughter of the innocents. Israel emerges out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. We saw in the first two chapters of Matthew, Jesus emerges from Egypt by the mighty hand of God. There is this clear parallel I think in Matthew's gospel, where he's trying to show very clearly, both in prophecies and in major Old Testament events, that Jesus identifies with the people he came to save. And you'll also remember, when Israel is delivered out of Egypt, they pass through the waters of the Jordan And they enter into the promised land where they fail to drive out the enemies that God commands them to drive out. Now, Matthew doesn't explicitly say this, but when you consider everything he's been doing in these first two chapters. I think it's a very legitimate observation to say that John's baptism for Jesus. And I think it's doing a lot of things here, but I think one thing it's doing is identifying Jesus with the passing through the waters, just like Israel passed through the waters. He emerges from the waters, just like Israel emerged from the waters. When he goes into the promised land, though, and you see this in chapter 4 in the temptation of Jesus, where Israel failed to deal with her enemies, we will see that Jesus perfectly eradicates the enemy from the promised land, quoting God's word time and time again to Satan. In other words, over and over again, Matthew is identifying the Savior with the people that he came to save, particularly pointing us back to the Old Testament and saying, look, these things were prophesied, these things were predicted, these things were shown to you in types and shadows and picture lessons. It's almost as if he's screaming to us, you just can't miss the overwhelming amount of providential evidence that Jesus is the Christ Jesus is everything that the people he came to save can't be. And as he enters into these waters of baptism one more time, he doesn't have sins to be forgiven, but his people have sins that need to be forgiven. And as he enters into these water, the, baptism, the waters of baptism, I think very clearly at a minimum what this baptism is doing is consecrating himself to the service that will come at the end of his life when he lays down his life in our place and dies the death that we deserve to die under the wrath of God. This is just one more way Matthew is signaling Jesus identifies with sinners. He's not a sinner himself. So there is that component that's missing. He's not turning away from his own sin, but he is entering the waters of baptism to identify 
with your sin. I think that is clearly what is going on here. Now, there's other things happening here, too. This is a, an occasion for a public announcement. This is an occasion for a public consecration. This is the beginning of his public ministry. I think all of those play into this. But I think especially important for us not to miss is the baptism of Jesus is the way that he publicly identifies with sinners, knowing that at the end of his life, the righteous will become the unrighteous so that the unrighteous might be declared to be righteous. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. That's what Matthew opened up saying. He, he came to save his people from sin. That's his, that's his mission objective. And this is where he begins that. Let me look at a second question. That, that speaks a little bit to why Jesus was baptized, but... Another question that's often raised looking at the baptism of Jesus is did Jesus possess the Holy Spirit and sonship prior to his event? Now, you may think that's an odd question, but if you look at the context, this is when God publicly says, this is my son. This is when a visible representation of the Holy Spirit comes down and descends upon Jesus. It, it makes sense that you would ask that question. It makes sense that there have been some not insignificant movements in church history that have answered the question wrong. There is a position in the early church called adoptionism. Later cousins of that would be Unitarianism, modern day liberalism. There are some Mormon spinoffs of this that all have some version of this idea that Jesus was not God's son before the baptism and that Jesus did not have the Holy Spirit before the baptism. Most, if not all of those, are heretical views. Clearly, the answer to the question, did Jesus have the Holy Spirit before his baptism, is an unequivocal yes was Jesus the Son of God before his baptism? An unequivocal yes. And Matthew emphasizes that throughout his gospel, that Jesus is God. Jesus preexisted his birth and entrance into this earth. The baptism is not a conveying of the Spirit for the first time. The baptism is not a conveying of the sonship of the first time. Instead, it is a public declaration. It is a public announcement. It is a public consecration. It is the formal occasion when God speaks to his people and says, this is my son, and he is empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring in the kingdom of God. And I can't help but think, and others have noted, noted this as well, you think about this from Jesus' perspective. And keep in mind, Jesus is divine, but he's also human. He's a human being. And when you put yourselves in the shoes of the human being from a human perspective, I can't help but think, this moment in Jesus's life would be a moment of profound personal encouragement. Maybe not unlike 
the times that I reflect back on my ordination service, most people don't remember it. Most people never think of it. I think of it frequently. I still have the charge that one of our ruling elders gave to me framed in my office from my ordination service. And every now and then, it just does my heart good to look back at that and just be reminded, here is the mission objective. And this is what I'm called to do. And sure, sure, from a human perspective, this event would have confirmed that to Jesus. He already knew it. He knew the Holy Spirit was with him. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He knew that he was God's son. He's been God's son since eternity passed. But to have it publicly confirmed, publicly consecrated, surely was an encouragement to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for God to say, you are my beloved son. And you see in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Don't miss that the Trinity is at work here. Matthew mentions all three members of the Trinity. This is a Trinitarian consecration. This is a Trinitarian blessing on the coming of the kingdom of God. And you'll remember at the end of the Gospels, when you come to the end of the Gospels, it's Jesus who commissions the disciples to go baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's very significant. The, the public ministry of Jesus begins with the Trinity in a baptism. The public ending of Jesus' ministry is bookended with a directive to baptize in a Trinitarian formula. And all of this is laid out by Matthew to demonstrate Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit as the Son who would preach repentance and usher in the kingdom of his Father. Third question. What does the voice from heaven mean? Verse 17. Spirit descends, you have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God descends like a dove, whatever that means. It's some visible re representation of the Spirit. In verse 17, behold, a voice from heaven said, and the implication here clearly is this is God the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What does that mean? It means that the age-long silence is over. The wait is over. The anticipation is over. The fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies all these Old Testament types, all these Old Testament pictures, all these Old Testament shadows is now fulfilled in the God-man Jesus Christ. And in fact, this quote from the Father 
seems to be an allusion to three different Old Testament texts, Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 42. They're all messianic predictions. This is a messianic title. My beloved son with a capital S. This is God's public declaration saying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the ruler. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is my son with a capital S. And when I look upon my son, I am well pleased. This is the long-awaited Messiah who has come to fix broken humanity once and for all. And in identifying with his people in this way, in entering into baptism in this way, I think the message Matthew is clearly sending is that Jesus is everything that God is. Jesus is also everything that he means for you and me to be and to become. And Jesus is everything that we will become when our redemption and our glorification is finally made complete. So friends, the way to eternal life is repentance and turning to Jesus. And when God looks at his son Jesus and he says, I am well pleased in my son Jesus, I want you to know that same verdict, that same word of encouragement, that same word of vindication rests by transfer by the work of Jesus Christ on all of the sons and daughters who belong to God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, you become a true son of God. In Jesus Christ, you become a true daughter of God. And in Jesus Christ, because of Jesus Christ, God the Father looks at those in Jesus Christ and says, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I take great delight, and in whom for all of eternity I love and I am pleased. Father, we thank you for the public ministry of Jesus. We thank you that he identifies with the unrighteous that we might be declared righteous because of his life, death, and ministry. Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts in repentance to him, that we may receive eternal life. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name and to his glory. Amen.